Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Colleen Cronin. Colleen is a reporter for EcoRI News, a nonprofit dedicated to reporting on environmental and social justice issues in southern New England. It's a small group with three reporters on staff. Colleen covers rural Rhode Island. She's been with the organization for a year and a half as part of Report for America. Colleen is a graduate of Brown University, where she was editor-in-chief of the Brown Daily Herald. She also worked briefly at the Boston Globe. Please join me for my conversation with Colleen Cronin. Hi, Colleen. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And as always, we start the conversation with uh, you telling us your journalism origin story. Oh my gosh, that's a a, a good question. And um, I feel old in journalism at this point, but I'm only 25. And I started when I was uh, 18. So I guess it's not really that long ago. I went to Brown University in Providence. And before that, I was an avid Gilmore Girls fan. And so that was kind of my, I read news a lot, but I, I didn't really know any journalists in my life, but I was really a big fan of Gilmore Girls. And I kind of, people had said that I reminded them of Roy Gilmore and then watching the show back, I realized maybe I internalized some of that stuff. So I thought, oh, you know, like when I get to college, maybe I'll try the the student newspaper. So I knew going in that I was going to try the student newspaper, but I didn't really know what I was going to do. I thought maybe I'd study economics or poli-sci or something. And I was in... I won't even tell you what class it was, but it, it was a, a policy class, I'll just say, because I don't want to hurt this professor's feelings. But I was sitting through the class my first week and I was like, just, I don't know if I want to like read this textbook the whole semester, you know? And so it was like a two hour long lecture and I was looking at what else was there. And I'd seen that there was a journalism class taught by Tracy Breton, who is like, just was journalism at Brown but she was a Providence Journal reporter for years and years and years. She won a Pulitzer Prize for exposing corruption. She's just a really cool person. And I was a little bit intimidated by that when I looked at the courses and there was like a writing sample you had to give into the class. And I was like, oh, I'm never gonna, you know, get into the class if I have to give a writing sample. But I was sitting through this other class and I was so bored and I just wasn't liking it. I was like, I'll just go sit in on her first class and see what it's like. So I sat in. I decided, oh, I'll try to do this, you know, writing sample. I'd never done any sort of journalism before, although like I'd always loved to write. <laughs> and it was to interview another person in the class and write a profile on them. I don't even look at that profile, haven't looked at it in such a long time, but somehow it got me into the class. And then it kind of, that was just how it went from there. And so it was this concurrent story of, you know, I think that her class gave me the confidence to pursue it, pursue journalism, journalism, maybe in a more academic sense or like a more career focused way. But then I, I, so I, I, I felt confident, but maybe I could gain the skills to do it. And then I really fell in love with it doing the Brown Daily Herald, which was my alma mater paper, which I still love so very much. And, and that's kind of how it started for me. And then I never stopped doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and if there's anything in your family or heritage that lends itself to storytelling? 
Well, my name's Colleen Cronin, and I'm very Irish, if you couldn't tell by that first name, last name. And I think that there is something very... Stories, I think they're important in every culture, but I think sort of the oral traditions in, in Irish culture are really important, like sitting around and telling, you know, banshee stories and leprechaun stories. And I mean, if you want to get into the Catholicism, the, the St. Bridget stories and all sorts of stuff like that. So I think you grew up hearing a lot of fun stories like that. And I also grew up with my grandfather was a police officer and my dad is a police officer and my mom's a teacher. And I think that for my grandfather and my dad, like they always would tell stories about the kind of unique things that they experienced on the job. And my mom is a history teacher. So, you know, she's always talking about the stories of how we got to where we are. So I think there was this combination of, you know, pub they're both public service jobs you know, trying to do something maybe good for your community or being a part of your community and with a storytelling component with it. So I think that that really shaped my interest in being in the humanities because my mom and I were, were always watching documentaries, you know, Ken, I, I watched a lot of Ken Burns documentaries growing up, <laughs> probably more than the average like 10 year old. And, and then talking with my dad, I learned a lot about the justice system and how it didn't work the way that it was supposed to a lot about substance use disorders and mental health. And then when I got to college, those became topics that became really important to me to cover. So I'm, you know, obviously I cover the environment now, although I try my best to get those justice angles in there and some of the stories that I write. But when I was in college, I like almost exclusively wrote about criminal justice issues. So. Okay. So that must've been interesting because you're going to, you were going to college, if I'm not mistaken, at a time where criminal justice issues and policing was a big thing. Are there any interesting, if you're willing to share any interesting conversations that you had about things that happened, just like George Floyd certainly being a starting point for that. So that summer, I actually freelanced for the Provincetown Independent, which another shout out to a great organization. There's hyperlocal newspaper in Provincetown, and they do incredible work and incredible investigative work. And Stephen Kinzer, who's my professor at Brown, helped me figure out like what I should do that summer. And he suggested that I work there. So I covered policing actually that summer, which my dad is not a police officer in the towns that that paper covers, but he is a police officer on the Cape and I was covering four different police departments on the Cape. I ended up writing a story about racial profiling, using data on arrest records and just seeing if there was any patterns and there were a disproportionate number of people of color arrested in these towns that have honestly very high percentages of white people in them. So it, it, you know, it was really interesting. It was really tough to have to think about that being the way that your community really was, like the data showing something like that. And I actually ended up having a really nice conversation with my dad about it, where he read the story and he was like, you know, that really makes me think a lot about like my own implicit bias. And I think like that was really the point of a lot of the conversations we were trying to have that summer. And so even if other police officers read it and were miffed about it, I appreciated that my dad appreciated it. And, and you know, who knows? I don't know how he would feel reading the story, not with my byline on it. But like, you know, I think part of it, too, is like the erosion of local media. You're not necessarily knowing the people who are writing about your community, if anyone's writing about it at all. 
but I, I think that there can be a benefit that like, you know, in some ways, I, I don't think anyone would accuse me of going after the police unfairly because of my background. And so maybe like I'm in a good position to try to hold them accountable. All right. So what were uh, one of the cool things about this podcast is the variety of schools, alma maters that we have people that come from. Your episode follows someone who just, who graduated from Cal State San Marcos. You went to Brown. Uh, a lot of great opportunities for people at Brown, certainly. What were some of the highlights of your time there? Oh gosh, there are so many wonderful things about being at Brown. Probably so many wonderful things that I now still live in Providence <laughs> because I enjoyed my time at Brown so much. I mean, I think the number, I mean, I've already mentioned them, but Tracy Breton, my professor, and a lot of the professors that I had. I also had Stephen Kinzer, who was New York Times reporter for a very, very long time and now also writes occasionally for the Boston Globe. I had them as mentors and they were all about teaching in the real world, like get out of the classroom, which I think if you, I a lot of people in my age really haven't experienced newsrooms, but I've had a, some internships in newsrooms and they're the best people in the newsroom would always say, why are you sitting at your desk? Why aren't you out there? So I think I got a lot of that from some really cool people and in kind of a non-traditional journalism school sense, like Brown's not, there have been great journalists who come out of Brown and I've been lucky to, you know, there are some students a couple years older than me and even some younger than me doing great things in journalism, but you know, it's not a journalism school. I didn't study journalism at Brown. I studied English. So I think that kind of getting a non-traditional journalism education and a more liberal arts education, I think that that was a wonderful thing because I got to explore, you know, all sorts of different interests and I got to still be really interested in literature, which I really love and I think can help a lot of great novelists have also been great journalists. So I think that there's, you know, storytelling in lots of different forms can help inform your journalism. And then I think the number one best experience that I had at Brown was the Brown Daily Herald. It's just an incredible paper because I think if you go to you know a journalism school undergrad or if you go to some of the other Ivies I think there's a lot of competitiveness within those school papers and I think that a lot of people feel like they need to have experience in high school to end up on the paper and I never did journalism before I got to Brown. I definitely had friends on the paper who did do journalism but you know, my first story, which I don't know why they didn't let me do this, but I was partnered with an older report, an older reporter on on the our roster. But I interviewed Gina Ramundo, who was the governor of Rhode Island, for one of my first stories. So I mean, like they just really like push you out of the nest to begin with. And so I think it's just a remarkable opportunity, even if you don't end up being a journalist, to learn a lot about what's around you being at the Herald. So I think I think you know. Kinzer, Tracy, Breton, and, and the Herald. Those were my highlights. Were you at Brown at the time where every editor-in-chief of an Ivy League paper was a woman? I was, yeah. I, and I was actually editor-in-chief of the paper um, my senior year. So it was really cool. I mean, and when I, I graduated in 2021, it was sort of like, you know, we were still very much in the middle of the pandemic. We'd been sent home the previous academic year. And so we were all trying to figure out what we were doing. And I think there was huge collaboration, not just among the Ivy League papers, but I think, you know, there's a lot of 
shared ways of how things work so I think that there's natural communication happening but like a lot of us who were running the school papers at the time were reaching out to each other or figuring out you know what are we doing like are we printing are we not printing what are you guys covering like how are you covering it like how are you doing <laughs> during this really difficult time so yeah so that was very cool to be able to be a part of that so how did you end up at e I guess eco ri that's a great story i think too i was at the boston globe at the time and i was deciding like you know maybe looking to see if i i, I filled in in a lot of different places in the globe i loved my experience there but i was hoping that i might try to do like maybe a more traditional like a beat reporting job because when i was at the globe i was in a lot of different places and i was learning a lot but i kind of wanted to own my own beat and so i was like you know i want to maybe go back to a more hyper local place and try to like do the traditional get on your beat and learn how to you know be a real journalist type thing so i was looking around for other jobs and i knew about ecori because i had a friend who had written for them in college and one of the founders also went to brown and they also just did like great environmental work, environmental reporting in Rhode Island. And so they were a really good resource. I was a Metro editor before I was editor in chief of the Brown Daily Herald. So like I would read their stuff when I had to do with the environment. And I had thought about doing Report for America. And so I was sort of interested in that. And when I found out that Report for America was going to, they were going to be a Report for America newsroom, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. Like this is perfect, you know, because I think that something that's, you know, I felt when I applied to Report for America was that they were really glad that I was somebody who had a connection to the place that I was reporting in, you know? So I thought that this will be a good thing. I, you know, have a connection here, but then I also will have a whole different experience than I've had before reporting in Rhode Island. And so I, before I applied through Report for America, I reached out to them and I was like, hey, do you need any like freelancing help? I'd love to. And I'm also, you know, hey, thinking about applying for Report for America. And so I freelanced for them before I even applied for Report for America, which I think did help a little bit when I ended up applying. As any tenacious reporter knows, you got to cold call and email as many times as you can. So, so that's how I ended up there. And I, you know, I'm from Cape Cod originally. And so when I worked at the Cape Cod Times, which was my first newspaper internship, my first like real newsroom job, we almost everything we wrote about had something to do with the environment. So it didn't feel completely foreign to me, even though I hadn't like officially been an environmental beat before. Did you have any history of like when you were a kid of being into the environment? Definitely. My mom says that like my number one job that I wanted as a little kid was a marine biologist. So I'm not a marine biologist. I often need, I just spoke to a marine biologist who had to explain the different, what different seagrasses are and that there's more than one type. So, you know, I wasn't as science minded as I had hoped to be as a child, but I do think there's something there between just like, you know, a curiosity in like nature and what's around us. All right. So let's go through a couple of different types of stories that you've worked on just to to kind of walk us through from idea to finished product, essentially to show what you do. I want to start with one that I know my mom would like, that you went leaf watching, leaf peeping, as it's called, and explained through a tour guide the significance of different types of trees and their leaves. Can you explain that story and how you reported it? Yeah. So it was sort of just something I was interested in doing. I love the fall foliage. And so I, you know, 
I get a lot of newsletters. I'm in touch with a lot of different community groups. And so I, Aquinic Land Trust had hosted a small, not small, actually, I shouldn't say that. They're very, they do a lot of stuff and they've conserved a lot of land on Aquinic Island. So a very impactful community group is how I'd say it in Rhode Island. They do a, a lot of events and I'm sort of familiar with the people and, and I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. Like this is something really fun that I want to do how can I make it a story? And so I thought, you know, maybe I'll take people through the forest and we'll kind of talk about the significance of the leaves and then the trees that they come from. Because we talk about the colors, but like, what does it really, what do the leaves really do? And so they, they just gave me a lot of great material because, you know, we saw the beech trees, which are infected by a blight right now, and it affects the tree's leaves. And that makes impacts their photosynthesis and that's why you know that blight is really scary right now for for the beech trees and the you know pretty well-developed beech forests of New England so it was sort of like a I think there'll be a story here at the very least I'll be able to take people through kind of like a vivid interesting scenery like maybe it'll be a little bit more of a um a day in the life, like a walk through the woods type story, but like, I'm sure there'll be a story here and I would, I'm really enjoyed this. And so I'm hopeful that other people will too. And that's kind of how, how it came from. I, I like that. It's kind of uh, like in sports, we talk about play by play, you kind of would be leaf by leaf. So exactly. To speak. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So another one was the teaching of a humane method of killing fish one that's pioneered by the Japanese the teaching of it to local residents. How does an idea like this just kind of happen as a story for you? Again, it's just because I think I'm a little bit, well, all of us speak our news, we're like really in the minutia of what's going on environmentally. And because the environments are our deal, you know, I think we can't just tell the like, okay, we, there was major flooding this summer because of historic, you know, precipitation that will become more severe as climate change continues to impact us. We do tell those stories, but we really want to dive into, you know, solutions and problems. So my editor had actually sent me a bunch of grants that the sea grants that, uh, I don't know if it was sea grants actually, just grants that URI was giving out to different professors to try to do more sustainable food and fishing systems. And she's like, well, the Ikejime, which is the humane form of killing, that's what it's called in Japanese. Um, she's like, that sounds kind of interesting. Like, maybe you could do something quick about it. And then, of course, the professor who was doing it, you know, he was out when I called the week that I called and I wasn't able to get in touch with him. And I'm trying, you know, calling his colleagues and be like, hey, do you know when he's going to come back? And so eventually he gets in touch with me. He's like, what, what do you really need? What do you want? And he invited me to come actually see the demonstration and try to taste some of the fish. And I was like, okay, well, this is way better than just, you know, talking to three people on the phone for like this quick story. I'm going to like go take pictures, which were a little graphic depending on your stomach. But it, and it was really fun. And I learned a ton. I ended up getting to talk to a ton of the fishermen who are learning how to do the method. Talking to, to people who are in food sciences who you know, got to participate, learn how to do this method through the grant. And so it was sort of just like a story that like, my editor was like, oh, this seems like kind of interesting. You know, we we get all this info all the time, but all the, there's so many grants out there and so much funding right now for different green stuff. And it had just kind of ended up being its own kind of cool, wacky thing. And I, I know it was really fun. And I learned something that I would never have known anything about. Brief commercial. We've got a sub stack now. 
journalismsalute.substack.com, episode updates and more. Hope you'll try it. Now back to Colleen Cronin. I get the sense that you're a very curious person. Is that fair? <laughs> I think, I, I, I like to think so. I think I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned the minutiae and being really into the minutiae. And I think of, in my field, sports and how into the minutiae I get. And then I have to remember who I'm writing for. And I'm curious with your subject, with eco-ri, who's reading you? Are you preaching to the choir? Is it being read by environmentalists? Or are you reaching converts who might be skeptics or neutral? So I think there's two different types of audience for us. I think of it a little bit like we're like Politico for the the environmentalists of the state. You know, Politico is really like a lot of people read it, obviously, but it's also insiders who are like deep into the playbooks and always interested in, in reading what's there. And I think that that's similar to us where every people who are in the industry or policymakers in the state who are doing environmental stuff, they're probably reading us, or at least I hope that they're reading us, knock on wood. But so I think that there's that contingent who, I mean, they probably do recognize that climate change is a problem and is happening if they are reading our stuff. Otherwise, they might get a few paragraphs in and, you know, want to throw it away. But at the same time, I think that then there's another group of people where Rhode Island's a really interesting state. You know, it's a blue state, but it also is in a lot of places really red or purple or, you know, there's dinos and rhinos, they say. And I think there's a lot of people who care about the environment, but might not always vote for people who's environmental policies are at the far forefront of their platforms but like I think we have a lot of hunters and fishermen who read what we write and you know they're not always politically aligned with the people who are you know against fossil fuels so I think that there is definitely a mix of people and I hope that we are drawing people in by you know maybe exposing things that they wouldn't have known about anyway when we share new information so I think it is a mix and I hope we, we because we're fair and honest in our reporting, I hope we do get to draw on people who maybe were skeptical before. So in addition to doing these experiential type stories, and there are other ones, you did one about citizen scientists creating a community map of organisms and fungi and the like. There are other examples. You do some coverage that's more like hard news-ish, I guess, adjacent maybe. Things like ma covering mass transit and how the transit authority needs more funding to reach its emissions goals. What goes into covering that aspect of the beat? Well, tomorrow I will be at a RIPTA meeting for how, nobody knows how many hours. <laughs> They're going to an executive session at the end of the meeting and I'm going to have to wait until it's over. So like for, so I cover RIPTA, which is the Rhode Island, oh gosh, public transit authority. There's Rido, Rydem, Ripta, all these different ones. But they basically run all the buses in Rhode Island, and they also run the paratransit in Rhode Island. We don't really have trains. We have Amtrak, and we have the commuter rail that comes through Rhode Island, but there's not like a subway system. And so I have to, there's a, it's a quasi-public entity. And so that means I'm basically, I just cover that government entity. And it, you know, involves the Department of Transportation, which provide some funding for it. Also the chair, the head of the Department of Transportation is the chair of the governing board for the bus agency. So I'm at meetings a lot 
listening to the, uh, you know, their budget and what, you know, if they will talk about any legal stuff, usually they go into executive session, what sort of legal things are happening with them. I do a lot of, a lot less, God bless the public records officer for RIPTA because I am constantly requesting information from him, trying to make it make, pay less for what I'm asking for in terms of, you know, timeliness of buses, boardings, all sorts of stuff like that. So a lot of it is like sort of what would go into just covering a regular government body, the meetings, talking to folks who are on the board, getting documents and reading all the public information that's out there. And then the biggest thing that I do is like, I spend a lot of time at bus stops and trying to hop on the bus with people. So like, I, I am like, have met a lot of really cool and interesting people just, you know, like, hanging out at a bus stop and saying, hey, like, I'm a reporter. Can I talk to you? Um, I did this series this summer that was about people who only take the bus to get around. And, you know, that was, it was just little profiles about people, but then I ended up getting tons and tons of story ideas about, you know, the good and the bad of, of what happens in this public transit system. So it's, it is more hard news when I'm going to go to the meeting tomorrow and they're going to be talking about budget stuff. And I'll probably come out with, you know, four or 500 word story, but then it's also like a 2000 word story about what it's like to be an older person getting around Newport only with transit. So it's, it's a mix. That's great. That sounds like a lot like being essentially a community reporter, except your, your community is the whole state yeah, um, and, yeah. you're, and you're, and you're community and you're able to do it. The bus station is kind of a microcosm of the whole state, depending on all the different ones that I'm sure you, you wind up hitting. What has reader reaction been to your work? You know, I hear, I, I think that people are more apt to reach out when it's positive. So I hear a lot of positive things. I try really hard. I've gotten the advice from a lot of people to send your work to the people you talk to. So even if that you know they're not going to be happy about the story you're writing, send it to them. Because if you wrote something wrong, like, let's talk about it. And hopefully you didn't. And and even sometimes you think someone's not going to like the story and then they am saying, that was a great story. Thank you for being, you know, fair about this or like, you know, something like that. So people really do surprise you. I tend to do hear good things. I think I'm doing a lot of like what you're talking about, commu community reporting. And so a lot of what I do is, you know, sharing people's stories. And I think people really appreciate that. I have a little folder in my email called nice things. And so if I ever like get, you know, for the, for the most part, and I'm happy to hear any constructive criticism, you know, when people reach out about stuff like that, tr honestly and truly, but everybody gets like the Twitter trolls occasionally. And so if there's like a Twitter troll day, like I look at my nice things folder of when, you know, people reached out and said something sweet or like really appreciated a story. So I, I, it's mostly good reception and, and I hope that says something about my work and not just that people are too chicken to reach out when they don't like it. That's funny. Cause I would expect that if people wanted to vent, they would vent and you <laughs> would have heard it. So I think you're, I think you're probably doing all right. What does success look like to you at this point in your life? I want to be able to tell the stories that I want to tell. I think that I really love that I can kind of come up with a wacky story idea and my editors are really supportive of me and helping guide that wacky idea, but giving me the time and the space and the help to try to, to 
do what I want to do and, and trust me enough um, to do that. And I want to tell stories that make an impact. So I think that, that those are the two things that are successful, show success to me. I think it's easier to measure the getting to do what you want, because I think you can tell when you're getting to do what you want. But I, and not that it doesn't, I don't, you don't have to do a lot of things you don't always love to try to get the story that you really want. But I think the harder one is the impact. And I think that that's something that we all like, you know, in journalism struggle with, like, what difference am I making? What's the process of the actual writing like for you? Oh, gosh, it depends on the story. Sometimes I just feel like there, maybe it's like I got a good cup of coffee, like the right equilibrium of like water to coffee to sleep that day. And I can just like bang out a story or, you know, like the coffee shop that I've stopped in in the middle of Rhode Island, like is a, a like really has a good ambiance and like I get the story done. Um, but I think it depends if I'm writing something longer or something that's going to take me a while, I tend to try my best to write out my interviews as soon as I've had them done. Just like word vomit every, like as if that one interview with someone was its own story, like let me just bang out what that is and sort of like get the key points and and have it in my head, either from my notes or from my my audio recordings. And then I have sort of like not as organized as I probably should be outline system in Google Docs where it's like, you know, it's by person. What are my questions that I have left? My like biggest, I've got an outline, the people I've talked to, the questions that I have, the links I want to include. If there's documents I've gone through, like what are the key points for my documents all kind of lined up. But the biggest thing that I do, and this honestly takes me longer than I wish it did, I'll, I'll just write out the question, what do I want to say? And then I try to write it out if it's a couple of sentences. And that usually turns into like an outline and a nut graph. Sometimes it doesn't. And I'm also sort of do the thing um, that I think, I don't know if you ever, you did this in school, but I did this a lot when I was writing papers. Like I thought I had a thesis. And then as I went through and I researched what I had, I realized my thesis had really changed a lot. So I usually, I have a lot of funny comments that I put on the side, like, oh, come back to this. Nope, that wasn't any good. Oh, revise this, you know, or I don't like the wording of my thesis. Can I come up with something different? But I try to do a nut graph in the beginning because I want to make sure that I'm sort of guiding what I'm doing. Well, I've been there and done that as far as what you were saying. Do you have a story that you are particularly proud of that you've done? I recently wrote a story, well, fairly recently, that just took a really long time. It was a story about the Department of Transportation in Rhode Island and their crash data, which will you ask, what does that have to do with the environment? I had originally been looking into how safe streets were in Rhode Island for pedestrians and bicyclists, which, you know, if you want to reduce carbon emissions, walking around or taking a bike are good alternatives to driving in a car. So I was kind of interested in that. I'd seen, like, I think I get Axios's uh, newsletter. And so, uh, you know, in Boston is the nearest local newsletter that they have. And they were saying that there was an increase in pedestrian fatalities there. So I was like, oh, maybe that's true here. So I reached out to the Department of Transportation and I was like, hey, can I get, you know, this crash data? I'd love to like know location and age for the person and time of day, whatever. And so they gave me some of the fatal pedestrian data, but they wouldn't tell me where the crashes were happening. And it kind of just spun into this whole investigation 
into the policy that the Department of Transportation has not to give location data for crashes, even though they have it. And the Attorney General has now ruled that they have the discretion to do that. But I ended up making a public records request for other people's public records requests for this data. And I found that a lot of people, really academics, students writing papers, local organizations, they wanted the data because they wanted to be able to use it to advocate for safer measures in different places. And this was, you know, mostly focused on pedestrian and bicycle crashes, but also car crashes, like where were car crashes happening and where could roads be safer? I saw also internal requests for the data that showed that whenever they did want to improve safety in a certain area, they were using crash data anyway. So this was like a tried and true measure that if you know how many crashes are happening in a certain place, it can help you figure out how to solve the problem. And then they had actually tried to make a dashboard to release this information and they never did it. And they had given it to a consultant on a private project, even though they were denying citizens th like this request. So it was just very interesting. And it went through hundreds of documents and it costs a lot of money to get the request back for all of the requests for the data. But I was glad that I shined a light on the fact that people want to know this information and, you know, and they'd given it out before under other circumstances. So. And certainly not an obvious environmental story. It was something that kind of came about. You had to go through some different layers with, with what you're doing. It sounds like to get, to get to what the story turned out to be. Yes. My editor was asking me, so what does this have to do with the environment? What does it have to do with the environment? We need a graph in there about how this has to do with the environment. And I was like, I'll do it. I'll get it. It'll get there. <laughs> and, and eventually it did. That's great. What are the journalism issues that you're most passionate about? I think I just wish that journalism was more representative of what our society looks like. I think this was a problem that we talked about a lot when I was at the Brown Daily Herald. And I think that one of the problems is, is I mean, I'm not going to say anything novel, but journalism is not the highest paying jobs in the world. And I think it ends up leading people who already have a lot of privilege into these roles. And it starts out even, you know, even if, you know, journalism jobs do make adequate money or, or adequate compared to some other things that people end up going into, you know, to be on a student paper or to take an unpaid internship, like that's a lot of time out of your, your life that you're not making money and helping yourself pay for, your loans or try not to have loans. So I wish, you know, I think that I wish that student papers could pay their employees more. I wish that um, it was just, I wish that you could make more when you got out so that people who have massive student loans could go into journalism instead of having to take consulting jobs, which frankly, like have very similar skill sets to being a journalist. It's asking good questions and having good writing skills and presenting information. So I don't have like an answer for how to solve that, but I do hope that it's something that people are thinking about. And I think when we sit in rooms and look at each other, I think it is important to realize that we don't look the way that the society, society looks or our communities look as much as we should. It's good that a young person uh, is realizing this and someone who may be a future journalism leader, uh, certainly has already been a journalism leader, might be a, a future one uh, as well. How do you manage your mental health? 
Oh, that's a good question. I read a lot of silly books. I try, <laughs> I try, I read nonfiction too, but I try to avoid it <laughs> after a certain hour. I have like a stack of really fun like fantasy books on my desk right now. Actually, I'm a huge fan of the library, Providence Public Library. The librarians laugh at the books that I take out, but I'm a big fan of the Providence Public Library. So I think reading is a huge mental health source for me. I also have a group chat of other young women in journalism that I love. And like, you know, it, it is wonderful to have a resource when you have a problem that, and I have great, I, my colleagues are wonderful. Amy from RFA is wonderful. My regional manager who I can go to with problems, but also sometimes like, it's just nice to talk to peers about things as well and bounce ideas off of them. So they're a great resource and are great friends as well. And I think trying to uh, like celebrate your wins a little bit has helped my mental health. Like I think all journalists tend to be perfectionists. And I think that, you know, we can be our own harshest critics a lot of the time. And so I do keep like my nice things folder. And when I'm feeling bad about myself, like I do try to look back and say, okay, maybe I didn't beat, you know, Projo to this scoop on this thing but like I wrote a story like last week that was really meaningful and this person really appreciated it you know like sort of that balancing act sure celebrate the wins I like that how has report for America helped you it's helped me a lot I mean I think that it gave me the confidence to look for a local journalism job again I won't say any names but I think sometimes a lot of local news is owned by big hedge funds and that's really hard because if you're the newest person in the door like you know you're worried about getting being the first one out the door and i think that it really deters a lot in the conversations i have with my friends it deters a lot of young journalists to you know apply to some of these local news positions because they're just not really sure about the security of them and so i think that you know being able to feel secure because report for america is sort of like has a both a, a funding and a mentorship backbone to it i think that that just made me feel a lot better about going into hyper local market so the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? I really have so, so many. <laughs> you can do more than one. It's fine. I mean, so I worked at the Boston Globe for a little while and Ivy Scott, who is a journalist there, Shannon Larson, who covers a bunch of things, Ivy Scott's like criminal justice they're fabulous. They're friends. And they're also just people I really look up to in the work that they've done. They both did a lot of work on the Lewiston shooting in Maine. That has been incredible. And so I just want to say a salute to them. And the Globe in general does great work. And then I also have to say that the Brown Daily Herald, which gave me my start, they have been covering the uh, activism on Brown's campus during this really tough time really well. And a student actually from Brown was whose Palestine was recently just shot in Vermont and they've been following and covering it. And I think it's always a hard time to be a student journalist. I think it's especially difficult time to be a student journalist. And so the work that they've done is just incredible.
Lynn Cronin, reporter for EcoRI News, a nonprofit dedicated to reporting on environmental and social justice issues in southern New England. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. You can follow Colleen and her work online at ecori.org and listen to her and her colleagues on the podcast The Blab Lab, where they provide supplemental coverage to their stories. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.